Hello, this is Documentum, a podcast about NFTs and photography. It's brought to you by Fall Line Press. I'm Bill Bowling, the publisher at Fall Line Press, and I want to tell you a little bit about our show. Uh, in 2015, Stephen Shore and I co-founded a publication of Fall Line Press called Documentum, Volume 1. We published two broadsheet uh, newsprint versions of exploration around uh, the uh, phenomenon of photography as Instagram was taken off. And we always knew there would be a second volume or other things to explore. And now with volume two, I'm using the podcast format to examine uh, how photography and, and the world of blockchain and NFTs is beginning to do a new dance. Uh, NFTs is without question taking the art world by storm. And we're beginning to ask questions about, well, what does it mean for photography? And this is the show that we'll be asking that. And we'll be asking it of photographers, collectors, scholars, technologists, anybody who has a hand as a thought leader in helping to shape what's going to be a brave new world. We're so excited to be exploring these questions in this new space and through conversations with thought leaders from nearly every seat at the table. You have the most important seat, though, so let us know what you're interested in hearing about, someone that you've discovered that you want us to be in conversation with, or questions that you want us to examine. It's going to be a fun ride. It's a beautiful journey. So glad to be on it with you, and I look forward to building a community here through these conversations that we can all grow from and learn from. It's always really hard to get a handle on the present because it's always moving into the past so quickly. And I think one of the best ways for us to understand our place is to look to the past, because you can see with much more clarity how things change when you're not caught up in the middle of them. In our first conversation, we'll be talking to Kim Beal. Kim's a art historian, teaches at Stanford University, widely published, widely respected. Kim is also a very active writer. She's written a book, uh, Good Pictures, and a number of uh, essays at The Atlantic, Bomb, and other places uh, that you would want to be reading to learn about uh, what's happening with the medium of photography. Kim was part of a group um, known as Fellowship Trust that was responsible for the August Sander uh, NFT drop as you may have been following, the August Sander Archive, one of the most respective archives of photography, just released this week a 10,400 NFT drop of every contact sheet from the August Sander Archive. Uh, Kim wrote a series of essays for Fellowship Trusts, and um, having this moment right after the drop to be in conversation with Kim is super exciting for us. And we can't wait to get her views on that drop and the historical importance of it. Uh, and how she sees from a historical standpoint, a scholar standpoint, uh, NFTs shaping uh, the conversation right now. Here's Kim Beal. Kim, I'm just so happy to have you here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Well, I think it's good to start maybe with a little bit of background. How, Kim, how did you become uh, smitten with photography and particularly writing and thinking and researching around the history of photography? Well, I'll start with the smitten part um, because that <laughs> one goes back a little bit earlier, actually. And it um, ironically describes some of my interest um, in popular photography. But it's a part of the conversation that's often ignored when people tell their own biography. Um, especially from the perspective of the academy or from museums. So I was probably, oh, 10 or 12 when my parents gave me a 35 millimeter camera. Um, but the caveat was that I had to take a um, how-to photo course. And that course was taught in a hotel um, lobby or a ballroom maybe um, in upstate New York. And it was me and a bunch of middle-aged men um, and my dad <laughs> who, who took me there. Ooh, um, dangerous, dangerous company. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it, as a young kid, it didn't appear to me like that at the time, but, and it also didn't seem that strange, but all of the manuals, the how-to guides were really not directed at me. I never saw myself um, on the pages of those manuals as a photographer, but later, um, recently, really, I've started to discover, hey, women aren't represented in that way in photography. Mm. They're not represented as the photographers, particularly when I was growing up and before. Um, 
so I'm, you know, this is in the 1990s when I took this class um, and many of the materials we were looking at were made in the 70s or earlier. Uh, and so I've, I've really started thinking about how how-to manuals and the early instruction in photography can welcome people or alienate them. Um, mm. So I, I did continue with photography, you know, as kind of an amateur through high school and started working in the darkroom. When I was an undergrad at Brown, I had the opportunity to use the darkrooms at the Rhode Island School of Design and probably most importantly to interact with artists or people who were going on to become um, photographic artists. And so I really I loved the darkroom work. I loved um, looking at the world through the lens and seeing things come into focus. And after graduating from Brown, I decided to study photography more um, in a you know, post-degree program on the West Coast at a school called Brooks. Um, so I had a, a technical background in photography from that. Um, but at the same time, I started um, first interning and then working at an art museum. And I was invited to work with the curator of photography. Uh, so my history of photography actually comes entirely from working with the objects themselves. I had never taken an art history class before I started working at the museum. So it was a, it's a fascinating way to come into the medium because I really didn't have any preconceived notions about what art is or what a good photograph is, except for what I'd maybe learned through those how-to books um, and through working in the darkroom. So I think I think that perspective has been useful to me, even if at the time it made me feel pretty uncomfortable, like, um, you know, a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, should I really be here doing this? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I think it's fascinating. It's fair, I won't say unique, but it's unusual to see someone as well grounded uh, in terms of scholarship and study uh, on the historical side who also had an early important uh, and then a bit of a sustained uh, or maybe it's completely sustained experience uh, actually uh, taking pictures. Um, how has that how has that uh, how do you feel that's been an advantage for you as a writer thinker? Oh, I think it's a huge advantage. I mean, for almost for any practice, but especially within art history, there's so much that you know about form and material um, from working with it. You know what's difficult to achieve. You know what um, what's time consuming, what's natural, what is you know outside of normal um, practice. And sometimes those things get kind of flattened out in the final product. Um, you know, the typical response from somebody who doesn't know a lot about art is, oh, my kid could do that. But <laughs> once you've actually tried to do it, no matter what it is, whether it's photography or painting or sculpture or installation art or performance, you know that those things are deliberate. Um, those, those works of art are deliberately made and all the choices in them, you know, have some thought and practice that goes into them. So having a background in making work really helps me understand what artists do when they're making their work and whether that's a historical example or a contemporary one. Well, your, your fascination with vernacular and popular photography is just so timely. Uh, I think, uh, we've been, we've been of course, trending and sort of, uh, drifting or paddling and, in the direction uh, of a deeper appreciation for those kind of ar archives that once were thought of as, you know, maybe not even, uh, certainly not art with a capital A and maybe not even art with a little A and maybe they're not art. Maybe that these archives are something different, but um, speak to me a little bit, if you, if you will, about how the concept for good pictures came about because it's such a great, uh, great, concept and you've realized the book beautifully but how did you say oh i think i could do this yeah well i'm glad you started with this discussion of the vernacular image um and that term has been around and applied to photography um at least since the 1990s um or before maybe even with um the description of walker evans's collections of photographs um so vernacular means of the people um and it's usually a linguistic term that refers to how you know language is used by everyday people and so applying that to photography means all the kinds of pictures that are used every day so it doesn't just mean snapshots but it basically includes everything but art 
um, which is a strange way to make a definition um, by only by what it excludes. Uh, but that could include, you know, scientific photographs, advertising photographs, um, fashion, and uh, you know, and snapshots, and you know, portrait pictures from local studios. Now, the ironic thing about that is that a number of photographers who we would definitely include in the photographic canon of masters are people who worked in those other forms too. And so, if you think about, you know, Avedon, for example. Um, or even, you know, Walker Evans. Walker Evans is producing pictures that ended up in photographs um, and even earlier, or sorry, in photographic magazines or in um, documents to uh, represent government programs. So there are lots of ways that the photographs that even established photographers make, those are not just art artworks. So I wanted a way to think about this massive quantity of imagery that isn't considered art. Um, but is also sometimes reflective of art. Um, but I found that that's not just a one-way street. It's not like art only influences everything else. It's not just top down. And it's not just, you know, from the bottom up um, where you have um, like in the 1970s, art photographers borrowing snapshot mm -hmm. aesthetics to make things look real. So I became interested in this really broad category of photography you know, probably because I'd come at photography from so many different angles myself. Um, and one of the ways that people describe these vernacular images is, again, as not art things. And another way they say it is these uh, photographers had no artistic intent when they were making those pictures. And I firmly disagree with that. I think that anyone working with a camera today, whether it's a smartphone or a large format uh, view camera, has seen other pictures and has some idea about how they want their pictures to align with those previous examples. So maybe it's emulating them, maybe it's rejecting those previous principles. But I think whenever you're making a picture, you're aware of previous ones. And to me, that feels like um, awareness of and some kind of artistic intent. So I looked back at, um, I, I was noticing a few trends that seemed to um, buck the history of photography and what we often describe as, you know, this forward march of technological process. So a lot of times people describe photography only in terms of technological change, like we're suddenly able to capture motion with instantaneous views um, in the 1860s. And then you have, you know, steam trains that look still and then you get race cars. But I started seeing um, in looking at these, um, you know, popular publications, actually, I was reading like Motor Trend and um, uh, other magazines that used photographs in the 1950s and 1960s. And they started using a lot of motion blur. So basically reintroducing what we would consider a failure of photography and using it for an aesthetic effect. Uh, and mm -hmm. the more I looked, the more I saw these trends that were kind of woven through the history of photography, where it was maybe considered a failure initially, but then it was reappropriated after the technology had been able to get rid of that failure. So yes, we can stop motion with um, first with fast emulsions, then with shutters, and then with high-speed flash in the 50s. And then you get the reintroduction of this motion blur. But it happens in lots of other areas too. Um, whether it's uh, introducing shadows, um, for which now we think of as a way of creating modeling or a 3D effect um, on a face, but and it's referred to as the Rembrandt effect, this kind of right. side effect. <clears throat> but that uh, previously having shadows on a face in the 1840s and 50s was considered a failure because you weren't showing the whole face. So there are the, my book includes maybe you know 40 about 40 of those trends are probably reappropriated former failures um, that come back into artistic practice. Oh, it's, it's just fascinating, this sort of looping that happens with, um, I guess it happens to a degree with every medium, but especially with, I think, photography, because it's so, um, you know, the, it's driven by technology and science and, and engineers and people trying to find a better way, find a better way to eliminate, to plug up holes. And every time a hole gets plugged up, then it, it then it tends to make not just in nostalgic terms, but in other terms, makes us go back to what we knew before. There's so many people now working in tin type, you know, uh, even now silver gelatin is considered, you know, an alternative process to a certain yeah. degree. 
Well, let me ask you, I know that um, the, an aspect or an element of your, your success and, and how you probe the medium is coming at it from all these angles. And I know recently you were involved as uh, one of the co-conspirators, uh, so to speak, or collaborators around the uh, August Sander Archives uh, decision to release 10,400 prints, contact prints from their archive in the form of NFTs. Um, it seems like to me it's just a natural thing for you who is your interest in so many different um, aspects of the medium that you would find they would find you and you would find that. So speak a little bit about the Fellowship Trust, your involvement with that and what what that was about and why it was of interest to you. Yeah, so Alejandro Cartagena got in touch with me a couple months ago and was describing NFTs. And at the time when he called me, I had had no interest at all in NFTs. Um, <laughs> but the thing that- he I'm sorry, said, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just have to apologize for the laughter, but it's just the way it seems like everybody I talked to two months ago or three months or four months or six months ago, that seems to come up all the time. It's like a recurrent frame, refrain that we, we all have been in the love photography have been kind of waiting to wake up to it, you know? So it's like the wake up call that you got from Alejandro. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate that the wake up call so often comes in the form of a personal connection too. It's not a thing yeah. that I discovered that, you know, right. I needed right. to acquire, but it was like relationships that I was interested in building. And ultimately that's my role um, with the fellowship trust as I, contact artists and we talk about their interests or you know or lack thereof at the time of nfts and mm -hmm. we think about how this might better support their practice um in terms of sustaining like a sustaining financial contribution to their practice um and so when i spoke first to alejandro he mentioned this thing that was really interesting to me and that is that all the images on the internet are vernacular that basically and we're looking at a medium where we can see all these images kind of in the same format and they are all kind of leveled out because you know by virtue of them being on one device and that right. was really an interesting idea to me um and so i wanted to think more about that and um from his perspective and this is i think ultimately what convinced me is that artists images are tied to the artist the value of the image is tied to the artist um it's the name that often makes it sell but artists don't get much back from any secondary sales of their work um, and so alejandro's idea is that perhaps with the influence of nfts and the royalty payment system that's built into them that we might be able to affect some positive change in the physical art market. So especially in a country like the United States where we have such impoverished funding for the arts um, and particularly for the visual arts, I thought it was important to do something that could support artists and help them support themselves. In some cases for the work that they've already made um, and in other cases to fund work that's going forward. So that's um, a short history of my interest in this project. And then, um, you know, again, I said it was about relationships. And I think the other part of this team that was really exciting to me is um, working with Fernando Gallegos, um, who's a photographer and photo book editor um, based in Mexico, and also Darius Himes, um, who, of course, uh, works for Christie's. And I know because of his connections to San Francisco. And Darius is, has been um, talking to the estates of photographers and various institutions about um, NFTs and how NFTs might help fund the preservation of their collections and might also help generate interest, future interest among new possible collectors or even new viewers of their work. And so um, Darius was excited to meet Julian Sander, um, and Julian had uh, at the time not been interested in NFTs, as I understand it, but they had a, a very deep and inspired conversation, and they thought that, hey, this is actually a pretty radical thing that we can do by making this archive that had formerly been accessible just to Julian and his you know, immediate circle, making it available um, to people around the world.
Right. So that's that's a short history of that. Um, well, part. that's uh, so generous of you to share that, and also generous to um, to come in so so rapidly on you know the rate of change that we're seeing. Of course, it's the life we live in now, the digital age, where everything is change is exponential, right? Um, uh, one month you're hearing about NFTs and next month you're hearing about NFTs and photography. The next month, uh, the August Sander archive drops 10,400 um, <laughs> NFTs. You know, it just mo is, moves so fast. And uh, a hat tip to you for uh, having such great friends and for being, you know, willing to 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 say, yes, this looks like it could be a good thing. Um Quick question about um, if you know uh, when I was surprised, I, I, I actually went on with my family, my son uh, and my daughter, and we were, you know, we were part of trying to, uh, you know, um, mint uh, an August Sander. We we succeeded. You know, it was so exciting. There was such energy around it. Um, what was it like for you just as a personal matter to see? that rollout see that drop and how how did it strike you in the moment as that was happening you know i think it was part of our planning meetings when um one of our other uh founders of fellowship mentioned that you know 10k has an important resonance in the nft community and i hadn't known that before and i think that that's a really interesting way to speak to a different audience um, and to make these historic photographs part of a new a new history. So I'm excited about how um, how people feel a sense of ownership and how that ownership can tr create excitement in the um, about about historic images and I think awareness too. So I'm really I'm really pleased to see so many people engaging with these images um, and especially so quickly. And there's no hint that it's going to end. Um, it looks like this is this kind of excitement is, you know, at least here for the short term. Oh, absolutely. Excitement and energy are the two words I would use. That was certainly how at a personal level I felt being involved in that and to see the C10,400 <laughs> uh photographs uh, change uh cha transform and express themselves in a new in a new in a new form nft form and then to be able to be part now of the august sander archive um experience just as a personal collector and as just a person who loves the art it was such an opportunity to be able to do that and um I know um, you pointed to also, Kim, uh, the, the sort of the democratic nature and the community nature of, um, of, a, of the Fellowship Trust and that particular rollout in the August Sander archive supporting getting this new expression of the August Sander work into the world in 2022 in a, in a, and maybe with some energy and excitement that would not uh, a museum couldn't have generated or, you know, uh, an institution could not perhaps generate that. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think um, a museum could generate excitement within its own established communities. And I think, you know, the MoMA August Sander project uh, that took place over the past few years, there were uh, symposia held yearly for four years, I believe, um, to investigate those images and bring a large number of people to seeing them. So the MoMA acquired 619 images from the people of the 20th century project a few years ago. And their, I, I think that their attempt to be democratic and, and open those images up to new interpretations and new viewers was really noteworthy and interesting. Um, I think the thing that's different about the fellowship project is that it's appealing to a different audience. And those are maybe people who like certainly people who weren't on the mailing lists for MoMA and maybe weren't local to MoMA and couldn't go see them and maybe didn't read them later. So I think this is exciting because we can clearly people want to be involved. Um, and it's a matter of opening up this um, history and you know participation in the community of art um, to people who clearly want to be involved but didn't know how to do it before so mm. i think it's not not just not just that a museum couldn't have done it but that this is you know this is a ready-made audience in a different format mm. 
You know, so true. And as I was, I, I wrote a, a, an article yesterday on uh, patient letters Substack, which uh, is the, my little newsletter, but to talk about my experience with acquiring the NFT, because I, I don't, I collect photography and I wondered, like a lot of collectors do, well, what's it going to feel like to collect an NFT? And what I wrote was it feels a lot like collecting a photograph, but I don't have the problem of maintaining it, conserving it, insuring it, worrying about a fire or flood. Um, and many of the same drivers are there. I feel like I'm supporting uh, August Sanders' mission and supporting the archive and supporting art that I love in a way that if I went to MoMA and I bought the catalog from the exhibition or I attended the symposium, I would be connecting with the work, but I wouldn't be supporting it. There wouldn't be that same feeling of connection that you have when you uh, patronize work by acquiring it, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's really nicely put. And that's, I think, um, the thing that helps me understand NFT collectors. Like, yes, of course, there's an opportunity for financial gain. You know, some people are in thinking of these as investments, um, risky investments, but that's sometimes what investing is. But I think the thing that really resonates with me is this feeling of community, that you're participating in something. Um, and that sort of explains, you know, NBA NFTs, that you can see this thing um, that other people have, and you're, you know, you are definitely participating. And I think the other really strong aspect that you alluded to is patronage. Um, and this goes back um, to the origins of art and its uses as a way to communicate to people on a broad scale who were largely illiterate. You know, so the church is funding large, you know, murals and architecture, and uh, this is a way to get the message out. Um, and so therefore they are supporting artists who can get that message out. Um, but patronage, of course, has you know continued to support artists, um, individual patrons and collectors, um, you know, all the way through the modern and contemporary era. And this is, I think, a way of distributing that patronage into smaller segments that more people could afford. Um, so I'm I'm also interested in that the feeling of wanting to participate in that, and sometimes even the feeling of missing out, like. You know, everybody's doing this and I want to participate in it too. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something about being able to have a piece of that history that I think is really compelling, um, even if it's not a thing you can hold in your hands. You know, we, we've talked a lot about the experience economy in the past decade or so. Um, and I think we see it, you know, all over the world now with these immersive uh, photographic exhibitions. I don't know if you have immersive Van Gogh where you are, but there are a number of traveling immersive photographic. Um, yeah, I, they're not even virtual reality, but they're projections of images. People want to participate in art and they're willing to pay quite a lot for something that they can't hold in their hands. Um, and I don't see NFTs as all that much different. Wow, so well said. I, I I don't see them as all that much different either. They they of course they are different, um, but it's always the way, right? When we have a new technology, we always want to compare TV to radio. We want to compare, you know, um, the next thing to the last thing, you know. Uh, and, and it's always the case that each new expression, technologically speaking, will have its own benefits and its own uh, drawbacks. Um, at the end of the Civil War in the United States, um, the prices for photographs were really depressed because there'd been great demand during the war. At, and at least in the North, where there no, were no blockades and all the materials arrived um, easily, pictures got really, really cheap. Um, there was a ton of competition among photographers to do portraits. Um, and then at the end of the war, people didn't need portraits anymore. Loved ones weren't going away. Um, and, you know, to fight. And so there wasn't that same kind of demand. And so the photo industry basically invented a new size, a new format, and that was um, the cabinet card. So slightly larger than a carte de visite, a cabinet card is about four by five and a half on a printed um, on albumin and pasted onto a board, um, like a cardboard. And it took a long time to t get this format to take off, but the reason they instated it was because they needed to convince people, sitters, to get more pictures made because the industry was drying up. 
and it was everything was too cheap. And so they said, like, we need we need more clients. So what's going to bring them in here? Oh, a new size. Um, and so the editor of the Philadelphia Photographer um, was a, like a tireless booster for this new size because he needed it simply to reinvigorate the market. Uh, now we have a lot of cabinet cards and I just went to a um, antiquarian book fair over the weekend and could purchase one for $5, which is basically what they cost at the time. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we have a surfeit of them, which is really interesting historically that originally this was a size that was only invented to invigorate the market. So these kinds of market driven innovations have lasting effects. Um, and they do they really change everything always forever? Not really. Um, is there big change and then like incremental rollback? I think that's usually the way it is. I mean, the other massive, massive change I would say is the invention of flexible roll film. Um, and the first cameras to use those, you're looking at the Kodaks, um, Kodak number one in 1888 um, is still kind of expensive. Um, it was about $25. So not everyone had one. But suddenly, you know, cameras really are accessible to an amateur market. You don't have to do your own processing because you could send the film back to Kodak. Prior to that, you had to have the chemicals in your house and prepare the plates and the prints. Um, but then 1900, you have the introduction of the brownie, which was only cost only a dollar. So you have thousands and thousands of new photographers and a huge number of photographs being made. And so, yeah, the, these inventions all do absolutely change the way that photography is interacting with culture and society. Um, it's, you know, it's almost impossible to know what would happen with, if they hadn't been there, like how would the future of photography be different? How would our present with photography be different? And I think maybe we're in one of these stages now where we're caught somewhere between like, or this is my perspective. I feel like we're caught somewhere between that boosterist um, kind of attitude of the Philadelphia photographer editor saying like, hey, you have to buy these things because this is what we need without them. Like the market is dead. But on the other hand, you have like the Kodak that people are incredibly enthusiastic about and eager to buy. And it really does change. So I think it's too soon to tell whether this is going to change things like the cabinet card or whether it's going to change things like the Kodak brownie. Mm, mm. Um, and, and then another question that comes up is, um, that there is the capacity for the, the for an NFT to be expanded or to grow through metadata and additional uh, work with the NFT over time. I don't know if that's something that has come uh, in up in discussions with uh, that you've had with the Fellowship Trust or in other venues. I, it's not something I know anything about, but it it sounds uh, it sounds like it'd be great if that's possible. Yeah, I think that's something that Julian Sander is really excited about, that um, the archive that was released as NFTs were contact prints from original glass plate negatives. And those contact prints that were made by Julian's father included a bunch of handwritten notations on them. And some of those refer to markings on the original negative um, that would have taken place or would have been affected during um, August Sanders' lifetime, um, you know, how he wanted to print from those images. But there are other notes too, like how did they fit into the um, reconstruction of the people of the 20th century project uh, that was undertaken by Julian's father um, and by the art historian Ulrich Keller. Um, so there are lots of notes there and the proposal is that uh, Julian has included in the, in his manifesto for the 10K um, announcement was that there would be some kind of peer review process um, and after which people could, you know, submit uh, new information to the archive. Um, so as this collection of information grows, it would be forever attached to the NFT by, um, and, you know, including it in the blockchain data for each image. Well, that would be so great if the energy that we're talking about does unfold so that the you are almost crowdsourcing additional um, information about the, uh, the everything that surrounds that archive, right? And each individual document inside of the archive, if I'm understanding correctly. Uh, and that's going to be, I guess, something that the that Julian and the um, uh, August Center Archive will have to sort of foment and sort of 
you know, and have folks um, be uh, responsive to that call. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I think it is a very interesting possibility um, that, and, and it seems like one that's kind of late in coming that we have access to many, many people, many, many eyes um, and different life experiences that could bring new information and new interpretation to these pictures. And I think the thing that we've been missing is a place to put all of that together, you know, in the absence of a large public um, institution who's willing to host the data and review, review the data and then publish it, you know, oftentimes I feel like research is you know, reinventing the wheel sometimes. Um, and hopefully this will enable some of that existing research to carry forward with the photographs and for us to add new things to it rather than having to uncover the same old things. Yeah. And your, your, your comment about new things and not the same old things also opens up something that I, I, I think you're interested in vernacular and mine certainly carries with it is there's a tendency from an institutional standpoint and from a quote professional standpoint to think that we know it all right or that we've got all the ideas and one of the powers of, of a diverse crowdsourced uh, group of super fans you know and now with that drop there's 10,000 or so super fans who now have a stake so to speak an NFT kind of stake but they still have a stake in the archive that wasn't there before and so that would be as you were talking about new audiences being brought, new energies being brought, maybe that could also play out a little bit on the on the research and the additional new information side as well. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my favorite stories about a Sander photo came out of the MoMA symposia a, a few years ago. Um, people are describing this one image of two boxers um, and it, they look um, out of place in the rest of the archive. One of them is smiling, the other one, like smiling broadly, and the other one is not smiling at all. Um, and apparently a member of the audience um, pointed out that perhaps that one is smiling because he recognizes that the shoes of the other, the shoelaces are tied together. And so he knows something <laughs> that that person didn't know. And sure enough, you know, the audience is looking at this I love it. blown up image on the screen and all the art historians are, you know, pontificating about what the answer might be and like there it is it's a joke <laughs> yeah 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 that's so great so perfect really well the you know the other thing that um i wanted to i think that the um uh, that the uh nft the uh, august under archive nft drop brings up is just the fascination that we now have with archive and of course august sander was early understood early on the power of assembling uh an archive that could tell you know I've, I've used with i work as a photographer with archive with my own work and i i tell people you know any one of these is pretty cool but you and it's like pretty cool in the way that a trumpet player is pretty cool but you put a trumpet player in there with a 50 person marching band that's <laughs> got tubas and an ensemble then suddenly you've got some a horse of a different color you know and something more, and not saying you know necessarily more powerful than a single image, but powerful in a different way, and that's sort of the genius of archive, I think. So, speak a little bit about your interest in archive, and let's open up a, a conversation about archive, and and use maybe the August Sander archive as a as a platform to talk about that. Yeah, I, I like that example a lot. Um... There is something so powerful about being able to compare multiple images. Um, and I think it reveals a lot more about the singular um, than that single image could on its own. You know, there are questions about time and about placement and uh, surprisingly, the, the one just doesn't allow you to ask those questions. But when you see the one in the context of many, you're suddenly left with more questions than you had with that single <laughs> image. Mm. Um, and I think it's because, you know, because of the comparisons that are allowed um, and you have some direction to take the, the questions. Like I think one of the hardest assignments you can ever give a student is to tell them to make a work of art. But if you narrow it down just a little bit and you say, make a work of art on an eight by 10 sheet of paper or make an art work of art with only the color blue in it, tell me a story, you know, about something that happened in the past. It's so much better than just saying make a work of art. Um, mm. And I think in the same way, uh, the archive directs your questions. Um, and then, of course, they can just open up 
infinitely from that place, but at least you have a, a point on the compass to start. Yeah. It gives you a direction and a point on the compass to start and, and, and also provides maybe a context or a structure within which to operate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit about archives um, and the possibilities of crowdsourcing and bringing new perspectives to them. And I guess a good example of this from a recent digital humanities project um, that a colleague of mine, Adrian Lundgren, undertook at the Library of Congress. She digitized a bunch of data from early uh, Daguerrean records um, of all the daguerreotypists who were active between 1840 and 1860 in the United States. And of course, all the you know boots on the ground research had been done by people like Peter Palmquist. Um, and one of the other records that she used was uh, Craig's Daguerrean registry. And so they have all these names, which is, you know, extraordinary work by digging through, you know, local historical archives and local newspapers to figure out who and where the daguerreotypists were in this early period. But it was hard to see where they were. And so what Adrian uncovered was a trend which shows that the largest number of women daguerreotypists in the United States were working in the Midwest between 1840 and 1860. And no one had fully recognized that before. You, the pattern just wasn't clear until you put the data on a map. And I think, you know, we could clearly do similar things. Obviously, um, the August Sander set is narrow. I know he's working first in the Westerwald outside of Cologne um, and then, you know, more broadly across Germany. but. There are other ways that you can organize data um, that a kind of digitization project enables that we might not see by simply, you know, flipping through ten thousand um, contact prints. Yeah, so so that's a that's really uh, interesting. So there there is the uh, you were saying earlier. I was agreeing with you that um, the aesthetic experience of seeing one uh, photograph uh, becomes. I won't say more becomes different when you see one photograph in that context of the archive. Right. And so that's part of what drives photo books. And I want to be sure we say plenty of time to talk about photo mm -hmm. books in the, in mm -hmm. the age of NFTs. Um, but, um, but you, you're pointing to something in, in addition to that is that uh, with archive and digitization, you can also with big, with big data approaches begin to understand uh, other aspects of how the work unfolded, for example, women photographers in the Midwest in the in the uh, in the 1800s. That's that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, it reminds me of a quote that I love by Howard Nemiroff. Um, he says in a piece on metaphor, if you really want to see something, look at something else. Mm. Wow. I think it's exactly that being able yeah. to compare and contrast and that's mm. what metaphor does it mm -hmm. gives you the experience of something filtered through something else but we can talk about visual metaphor in a similar way or visual comparison similarly right. reveals something more about the original image that that comparison right. wouldn't have brought to light right wow that's so powerful i've never heard that quote i love his poetry and and uh i will i will i will i will go back and dig that one out and write it down. You know, it, we, I, I studied art in the seventies and what, something that was a sort of a, co a common phrase around then was you wanted to do work that was beside the point, which is a, a more oblique way of maybe saying the same thing. Um, it's not what happens is the important thing is what's happening. That is beside the point. Ed Ruscha in 26, uh, uh along the what is it sunset strip 26 oh gasoline yeah. stations yeah oh it's 26 gasoline stations and then the sunset strip and so photography in that in that work is kind of beside the point right but it taught us something about photography we might not have learned any other way mm. yeah that's really interesting i love i hadn't heard that before i love it it reminds me of um, the advice about looking at a star that you can't see a star clearly unless you look slightly to the side of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think all those things are getting at the same, uh, getting at the same thing. It's also, it, to me, it's also relevant to, uh, uh, to this point in time where we are, where 
And I don't just mean NFTs. I mean, Instagram. I mean, all of the ways that our life online and in digital form is transforming what it is to be a photograph. This podcast, Documentum, we considered Documentum Volume 2. Stephen Shore and I did Documentum Volume 1, which was two broadside, old school newspaper uh, publications that examined uh, work that we thought was be it was really cool and interesting and, and, and good, good pictures. You like that, Kim? Good pictures on Instagram. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so that was documented in volume one. And we we conceived it in 2015. We started publishing in 2016. We did two issues. And already Instagram had transformed so much with algorithms that we just couldn't keep up. It just wasn't the same thing anymore. You know, it had just transformed mm -hmm. so rapidly. Yeah. You know, this is the history of photography um, and of society that we have ongoing change, whether it's technological or linguistic or political. And it's always really hard to get a handle on the present because it's always moving into the past so quickly. And I think one of the best ways for us to understand our place is to look to the past because you can see with much more clarity how things change when you're not caught up in the middle of them. It's a it's a real benefit of history to giving us that step away and a, a, per, a perspective with which we can look back on ourselves. That is so powerful. So true. Mm. Um, I think that was a uh, to me when I first became aware that Fellowship Trust was doing this and I saw that you had written a series of essays. Uh, I, you know, I turned to your essay thinking, oh, she's going to tell us all about NFTs. But and you did, but not you didn't talk about NFTs. You talked about uh, William Henry Fox Talbot's The Pencil of Nature, the first photo book ever. Not the first book that included photographic illustrations. You talked about that one too. Um, remind me of her name, the woman that did it's that. Anna Atkins um, yeah. and the British algae cyanotypes. Yeah. So, so really we were learning, we're learning now about uh, so that was so, I think there's what, four or five essays. I recommend everybody go read that, um, that series of essays that you wrote. It's excellent. It's good grounding. You should get college credit for reading those essays. <laughs> I hope they're not that hard. <laughs> no, they're not that hard, but they're that, but you really get, you really do easily and great read and you get steeped into, uh, into a re reminder of, of the medium's, uh, roots. And it's a good way to understanding where the medium is now and to, sit down in the canoe, sit down in the canoe, everybody. It's just photography mm -hmm. doing what it does. That's right. Yeah. I think that's, that's really true. I mean, a very brief glance, even back to the 1980s will reveal a absolute multitude of new inventions that were promised to be the future and game changers. And I think, you know, everybody needs to take a deep breath and sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I remember I, you know, I, I'm dating myself, but I, I feel like I've lived through, I literally, uh, when I was in art school in the seventies, I, I bought, uh, I think it was the second issue, second edition. It was a special edition of the Polaroid SX 70. And that mm -hmm. was the future. That was a moonshot. You know, it was like unbelievable. And then when I heard that Walker Evans was out with his SX 70, you know, here we are making these space age pictures with SX 70. Now it's uh, you know, people are fighting to get them because they feel so archaic, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's great too. I think, it, you know, we're always great. kind of braiding the history um, with the present and that's maybe what gives the present meaning. I mean, sometimes we can't even identify what it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, uh, my students don't, know firsthand what Polaroids looked like, but you know, five years ago, they loved using those filters on Instagram. You know, now right. there's nothing worse than like a, a fake Polaroid kind of filter on Instagram. Nobody has to say no filter because there's no way that you would make it look like that anymore. But that's almost because, you know, the, the filters are built into the camera now. And so we're, we're beholden to a whole different kind of technology um, and somebody else is really making the choices for us about what looks good. Yeah. 
Well, let's think about let's think about what will vernacular what and you know we can't even think about it. it's just so hard to imagine what will, what would a vernacular NFT look like uh, fifty years from now? What would that even be? <laughs> I think I oh it's hard to say. I think the first wave of NFTs would be vernacular images. I mean, they're being made. They're so diverse. They're not being made just for artistic purposes. They have lots of other um, influence behind them. But I, yeah, I'm not really sure. So something common that anybody makes, I, I it's hard to know. <laughs> well, I fell in love with, uh, it is hard to know. I fell in love with uh, eBay pictures and uh, just people back in 2005, 2006, I was just fascinated in love, fell in love with people selling their trophies or their Barbie doll. And they were just taking that, but they, they weren't going for art per se, but as you, as you said, they did have an intention. And their mm -hmm. intention was for you to see, I remember one in particular, someone's spouse probably not happy holding a set of deer answers in front of a door and not happy to have to hold these in the flash. The intention was to make sure you could see how great these deer antlers were, right? Mm -hmm. If you were wanted to buy them. Uh, so it was a clear intention and it was good photography because it was a clear photograph. And it was also fun for me because we had all kind of other stuff going on in it, mm -hmm. right? So. Yeah, I love those images too. I love the ones with silverware that have people yeah. reflected in them. Yeah, they're great. They're great. Oh. Yeah. Um, well, um, so photo books. How, so we can see now. With to me, the light bulb really went off with the August Sander drop. I mean, I was I was trying, you know, sort of like a hula hoop. I was trying to get my the hula hoop to go around on photos and NFTs and trying to understand. I wasn't against it, but I just didn't really get what it could bring. And then with the August Sander drop, I really did get it. And um, so I'm wondering, um, thinking ahead, well, how do you, have you given any thought to photo book? What, what, what role will NFTs play in the world of photo books? Cause that's what we do at fall line. We publish photo books. And so uh, as a photo book publisher, I'm scratching my head about it. Have you thought at all about photo books and NFT? Well, we should first of all say, of course, that you publish really beautiful photo books. <laughs> oh, wow. Your check is in the mail. <laughs> well, thank um, but, you. We, thank you. We think we do love the photographers and we do love these things that we publish and we try to make them beautiful. So thank yeah, you. They are extraordinary objects. Um, and I think I was really inspired by hearing uh, Gregory Berg on a call recently said he's working on a book and he wanted to include um, the voices, maybe a voiceover with the images. And I think that sounds like a great idea. There are lots of examples in the history of photography and especially the history of photo books of photographers adding different media to their photos. I think, of course, of Jim Goldberg and writing, adding text, handwritten text to his images, yes. including the voices of the people who are, appear in them. Yes. Or I think of Danny Lyon and the bike riders. Oh, yes. Yes. I that, saw. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. long transcript and the um, totally. Totally. And then later, you know, text on the images. Yeah. You and my friend did that exhibition at the Whitney of Danny Lyon's work, right? You worked um, on that? I, I was not involved in the exhibition, but um, I was uh, in contact with Danny okay. around the same time. Um, and I know that Julian did, Julian Cox did a huge well, amount of research on that show. It's a really beautiful it, it was. animation. It was. And what I was going to say is, is that my one of my favorite parts of that show was, that, you know, uh, he would also make recordings of the people he was photographing or people in the context and in the places where he and they had at the Whitney, at least they had I don't know about where the show the show traveled. So I don't know how they did it other places, but at the Whitney they had you could put on headphones and listen to those conversations and those conversations coming alive alongside and in the same context as those photographs was powerful. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard that I was actually on that same call, uh, Kim, with you when uh, Mr. Berg uh, was talking about that. And I thought, yes, that sounds like a great uh, way if we can, because ebooks have always been, you know, I, I, I have to say we've tried to do ebooks alongside, you know, one of our photo books and we just couldn't make it feel 
good. <laughs> you yeah, know? I think I think the key is that they have to be unique to the medium. And so there are certain affordances of digital technology, digital books, well, or even NFTs that aren't just derived from what the photographic image already offers. So where I get really excited about you know, an ebook would be something that gives me more. I love behind the scenes. You know, I love turning to the end of an Alex Soth book and seeing his notes um, from when he was making photographs um, or, you know, his discussions with people, you know, in the uh, legacy of Danny Lyon, really. But, you know, within NFTs, I think there's also space for showing people something more. I think it's a great venue for behind the scenes, um, you know, what what does the whole contact sheet look like? How did the photographer mm. move through the scene? And wow. you know, amazingly, you could actually recreate that. And we could, like, you know, we're almost in the deep fake territory here, but you could see what it's like to move um, in a virtual space through this photograph. Mm. Um, and I think that would help people understand a lot more what goes into the process of making a photograph and being at that moment in time. That seems really exciting. It's not something we can see on a wall. You can't see it easily by turning the pages in a book. Um, but there are lots of other ways that we can control the experience, maybe more like film um, or you know, some combination of, of digital media and audio and film. Um, and so I think there are lots of ways that we could make this a creative endeavor that doesn't just reproduce what photography already is. Yeah, to, to make it something that is grows out of the native advantages or the native, um, uh, if I'm hearing you right, native um, possibilities of the particular uh, uh, pr process or technology. Uh, yeah, rather than pasting something onto it, right? Um, right. Yeah. So with photo books, speak a little bit more about um, the photo books that you love. What are you, what, you know, and it can be one, you mentioned Alex Soth. I love, I don't think I have all of his books. I had Sleeping by the Mississippi. I jumped on early, love collecting photo books and love, uh, love making them and love them. So it doesn't have to be a specific photo book, but it could be a genre or speak to me about some of the people that you're really uh, enjoying now uh, in the photo book realm? So I think because of my love of vernacular photography, I am really drawn to photo bookmakers who are working with archives. And one of the first that always comes to mind is Melissa Catanese. And I love her book, Voyagers, which draws on photographs from the Peter Cohen collection of people reading books. And there's just something absolutely fascinating about watching um, how people engage with a book and you can't see what's on the pages. You don't know what they're reading. It might be a newspaper or a book or a letter, but she has these incredible images um, that you see the posture, you see how they kind of um, disappear into this other world. Mm. And her sequence of them is just brilliant. I love the way we can move through the space and you get, again, you know, this is all about comparison. So um, I'm teaching a class right now that's on photo books and it's called One Thing Then Another. And I think mm. that's really the core of my interest in photo books is the sequence. How does one thing then another make you think differently about that previous thing? How does it help you make a story? So Melissa is really brilliant with that. Um, Yale Iban is also great with that. I love her book, False Lighthouse, that also uses um, the Peter Cohen collection. Um, and they are images of ocean waves and parts of boats and maybe lighthouses. Um, it's a really mysterious book. And I love that she can bring together all these different images and create a fascinating um otherworldly story yeah that is so true i think sequence in in the edit um is really the secret sauce of photo books the ability to see a photo at pay the third photo in the book and then maybe at the 12th photo you 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 have an explosion that takes you back to the third photo and suddenly you get something new from it. Right. And, you know, do I put these, how do I put these into a spread or do I, how do I separate them? You know, it's, yeah, it's the joy. One of the joys of the codex form. I was reading the other day and, uh, I, I was, uh, reading, uh, uh, Susan Sontag, and I'd forgotten that she said this. She said that everything exists to end up as a photograph. 
but I was also reading at the same time, Stefan Mallarmé about books. And he said that everything exists to end up in a book. So maybe everything exists to end up in a photo book. <laughs> yeah. By, by virtue of the deductive principle. Uh, well, well, I um, think it's yeah. to our desire to collect things. To collect our desire to collect. And that was that was my direction for those essays on the Sonder collection. It wasn't um, necessarily to tell a whole history of photography, but to think about how photography protect uh, participates in how we make meaning out of the world. And I think one of the ways we make meaning is by putting things together, assembling ideas and memories and experiences. And, you know, to call in another Susan Sontag quote, being able to go back to those slim objects, those photographs are things that we can keep and look at again and again. And without them, our memory is somewhat impoverished. It's hard for us to confirm that what we saw is really what we saw. Mm. You know, neuroscientists tell us that every time you call up a memory, you're restructuring it. So really mm. what you're calling up is the last time you remembered it. But we have this sense of when we look at photographs, we can be... Um, back in that time and place, or at least um, through the photographer's lens. Wow, that's so beautiful to think about and so beautifully expressed. Um, you know, the reason that we have pockets on our clothing is so that we can pick up and collect things and put them in our pockets. We just <laughs> I naturally, love where that's going. <laughs> <laughs> we just naturally, we just naturally uh, go through life. Uh, whether it's collecting memories or collecting musical notes, we just are a species that loves to assemble the things that are around us and photographs and assembly of photographs is, uh, is really a natural phenomenon. So your essays, you know, collecting, taking that lens through which it took us to history, but you were really, you're right. You were talking about collect the nature of our collecting instincts. And mm -hmm. I think we're seeing that play out. You know, I was I was flabbergasted. I had no idea that the entire 10,400 photographs would sell out. And I didn't count the hours, but it was just a few hours that they, they were mm -hmm. all gone. And um, so that's pretty powerful. It means because even though the photographs were free, people would have to spend for the gas or the transactional cost of acquiring them. And, you know, that it's not nothing. It's, you know, it's, I don't know. You know, I can't remember maybe seventy five dollars when by the time I was into it, but but um, that and there's not that many people on the planet at this time. It's kind of like the early days of Instagram, right? I feel like NFTs is where Instagram was, you know, in its first six months. And I don't know how many billion people are on Instagram now. It's an entire ecosystem, economic ecosystem and social ecosystem. And it will be interesting to watch this next, uh, this next phase. What will you be watching for in terms of canary in the mine shaft? For, well, I am, I am not, <laughs> I'm not uh, qualified to make any future predictions. Um, that's, as a historian, that's really not my role. But, yeah, you uh, have to be looking back. But yeah, but I can say I think you know just to think about this as early days. Um, I think that was one of the things that really struck me about Alejandro's uh, proposition was that he saw that something was happening, and most people in the art world were saying, "Yeah, but it's stupid. There's nothing on there I'm interested in." And you know, mm -hmm. I certainly counted myself in that camp. Like I wasn't mm -hmm. interested in you know, crypto punks. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, questioning, is this like, where does art fit into this? And Alejandro said, well, if art isn't here yet, we have to put it there. Mm -hmm. And if you don't see what you want there, you have to put it there yourself. So I really respect his, um, you know, commitment and his belief that kind of made things happen. So rather than throwing up your arms and saying that, it's not the way I want it. You know, he's really trying to make it the way it should be and the way mm. he wants it. So I, right. 
that's what inspires me about working with them is that he's you know wanting to make a place for established photographers who deserve a bigger audience and certainly deserve to be supported for the work that they're already making and if this can give them access to an audience who wants to be involved in that patronage cycle then i think that's really exciting and so um, i hope there's more of that that's that's what i want to see in more the more support for artists doing art and great art and mm -hmm. so true okay well kim i just want to thank you for being um so generous and thoughtful and um i don't know creative in this conversation it's been fantastic and it makes me want to go back and work on that uh mfa and uh, the history of photography um i probably couldn't get into school now but um but you just make it so interesting and and thank you Thank you, Bill. And I, I hope you keep doing what you're doing, which is supporting artists and making beautiful <laughs> books and inspiring us with your words um, in your new um, Substack. So it's been a great pleasure to get to talk to you and to read some of your thoughts over the past couple of weeks. Oh, thank you, Kim. And I feel like I've made a, a new photography friend and uh, I feel like this is one of many conversations and I look forward to coming on your platform soon and having turning the table around, let you let you grill me. Cross <laughs> That'd be me. great. <laughs>